With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome into another episode of Double Stint, Sports Car 365's Sports Car Racing Podcast. I'm in Indianapolis, and my name is Ryan Marine, joined by John DeGeese once again as we turn our attention to the news of the week in sports car racing. And we've got a little bit of racing to recap over the weekend with the Gulf 12 Hours taking place. Some news to get to from the week as well, plus uh, questions from the listenership and a look ahead to what's to come this weekend. But first, John, something a little bit new from Sports Car 365, always trying to find different ways to serve the, the sports car racing fans out there and something that you've been kicking around for a while, I know, and decided to pull the trigger on it here this year, a new newsletter with a couple of different options for folks who might be interested. What can you tell us about uh, this this idea and what might be included in it on a semi-regular basis? Yeah, Ryan, we've um, officially launched the Sports Car 365 Insider Newsletter, which I know a lot of people have been asking about. Do you have a newsletter? Do you have a mailing list? And we never really had the time to sort of put something together. And I thought during the last few weeks, especially breaking into the new year, we we needed to do something with this and um, finally have have launched this. Um, It's sort of a work in progress at this point, but um, there's going to be two different levels, a, a free version of the newsletter that anybody could sign up for and um, there'll be updates um, periodically um, with some you know recaps of some articles and, and and whatnot there and then also a premium version of the newsletter which will be it's a targeted uh, weekly basis um, sent straight to your email or available on the 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 the, the sports card 365 sub stack page which is the service we're using for this um, it's a popular uh, and growing platform for uh, uh, journalists in particular to, to get their to get the word out via newsletters and um, a premium version which we're asking for either five dollars a month or thirty dollars a year um, that's going to be offering more behind the scenes opinionated um, more op-ed editorial version content from me and, and perhaps some of our other um, c- c- contributors too maybe later down the road um, that hopefully will be distinguishing the content a little differently than straight news of what we provide on the website um, this will be more of a, uh, a blog style um, what's going on in the world of sports car racing what are some of the rumors um, we're going to see where it goes there's definitely um, room for growth here and and, and hopefully um, getting some feedback from the readers and listeners as well to, to see what they want to hear from from me what they want to um, see in the world of sports car racing and 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 also um you know see where where this can can take us so exciting news for sure um you can uh, subscribe on the, to the sports car 365 insider newsletter on the website there's a pop-up on the homepage or at the end of each article at the footer um that's an easy way to find it if you're looking for it just go click on any article on the site um you could type in your email address and and go from there and uh again we appreciate any kind of support you um you can give um we know it's tough times for everybody but we're, we're trying to make everything work financially with with the website um, as well and that was kind of the idea behind this as well that you can have an option of of doing you know subscribing for free or if you'd like to have something a little more premium with um, more insider newsletters um, uh, throughout the, the you know the every every week um, there's an option there too 
Yeah, really exciting stuff. And like John said, we're really interested in your feedback. So if uh, it's something that you like or you have some suggestions for ways to improve it, we're all ears. And be sure to get in touch with us with those. So uh, look for that up at sportscar365.com. So uh, this past weekend, John, the first sports car race of significance for the 2021 calendar year. It was the Gulf 12 Hours. As we talked about on the show last week, there really wasn't a lot of information available going into the race weekend. And frankly, it wasn't a grid that was all that exciting. Not not a whole lot of cars. I think 12 or 14, something along those lines. Nevertheless, it's a good way to get started, especially for a busy time of sports car racing in the Middle East with the Asian Le Mans series running its entire season in the Middle East this year, and then also the Hankook 24 Hours of Dubai, which is coming up, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But at the end of the day, it was Ben Barnacote, Isa Ben Abdullah Al Khalifa, and Martin Kodrich who picked up the win overall in a two C's motorsport McLaren 720S GT3. That's a team that uh, has some experience in British GT last year, but has roots in the Middle East, so kind of a, a whole Home turf win for them. Um, not, not a ton of excitement there. They won by over a lap over a dynamic motorsport Porsche. But nevertheless, it's good to see sports car racing once again and kind of whet your appetite for what's to come. It's going to be a busy month of January and into February as well, it would appear, even without uh, the Liquamali Bathurst 12 hour in 2021. Yeah, we got the Dubai 24 hours this coming weekend and the six-hour race in Abu Dhabi held, um, organized by Curventech the week after. Then the Roar um, and all the festivities there with the qualifying race, then the Rolex 24, then what should have been the Liquamali Bathurst 12-hour. I guess that'll be an off week. But then right after that will be um, the start of the Asian Le Mans series. So, yeah, um, if, if it wasn't for Daytona stuck in the middle, I think it'll be a good place to be a good, good place to be based would be in the Middle East right now, uh, either in Dubai or Bahrain with a lot of the activities there, but um, we're, we're focusing on all corners of the, you know, between the Middle East and the U.S., uh, a good, good amount of racing going on right now definitely an exciting time of the year with so many new programs being announced and good to see some of them on track at least over the past weekend uh, dan lloyd had the coverage for us up at sportscar365.com if you'd like more information about how the golf 12 hours played out this year let's get to the news of the week though john and the much awaited announcement of a replacement for gerard Naveau, who had been the ceo of lmem which oversaw the wec as well as the European Le Mans series. Uh, We knew for some time that 2020 was going to be the end of the road for Girard. He had announced that he was going to be stepping back and pursuing other opportunities, although it does sound like he will still have a hand in things kind of behind the scenes. But what wasn't known is who was going to step in to replace him. And now we have a name, Frederick Lequien, I think is how it's pronounced. Apologies if I got that wrong. As we've talked about on the show before, my French pronunciation is not the strongest. But nevertheless, uh, a relatively young man who does have quite a bit of experience in motorsport, primarily in rallying with both the Dakar and the Silk Road Rally, but has some sports car racing roots as well. So certainly an interesting choice, and it comes at a critical time, doesn't it, John, with so much at stake at the moment, looking ahead to uh, prototype convergence, LMDH coming online, LMH coming online, and then all the questions about the future of GT racing that need to be sorted out in the next few years, too. 
Yeah, it's an interesting development for sure, because we had heard talk of maybe um, somebody from within LMEM being promoted to the, the role of CEO or potentially it being split up between um, the WEC boss and maybe the ELMS boss having separate separate people there, but ultimately it was decided that Frederick will take the reins. Um, he has a lot of motorsport experience, which is great to hear. Um, you know, you always worry sometimes when there's new CEOs in charge, if they don't really understand the sport or um, they come from a business background or other types of sports. Um, so it, it's good that, you know, A, he, he is he is loyal um, uh, motorsports heritage there. So um, I, I personally don't know that much more about him other than what's been published already, but look forward to meeting him in the coming months. And hopefully um, t we'll take the WEC from strength to a further strength right now. Um, it's obviously coming off of a challenging couple seasons with the, the super season and then the, the most recent elongated season with, due to COVID and the lack of competition in LMP1. And we're entering the hypercar era, as you said, Ron. And so um, a real crucial stage. But at the same time, even though Gerard Nouveau has um, stepped down as CEO, he still remained he still remains with the LMEM in some degree. Um, we understand he's going to be um, acting as the CEO of the Lama Esports Series. And he's also remained on as a consultant um, for the LMDH convergence with with IMSA and ACO. So um, I think he's scheduled to be at the Rolex 24 actually in a few weeks to continue um, that process with the IMSA. So um, I, I think that this change is not going to be a, as big of a as uh, not going to have a as big of an effect as what we've expected you know perhaps a few months ago when the when the bombshell came that, that Gerard was stepping down and and finding somebody of Frederick's experience I think helps this as well so um, I think this is good news for for the WEC um, sure you know there could have been maybe some others that were in contention but um, at the end of the day uh, a decision had to be made and and we're moving forward. It strikes me as good news that Gerard will remain in at least a, a consulting role concerning IMSA and the WEC's dialogue about LMDH moving forward, and it's worth keeping in mind that Scott Atherton actually has been retained in a similar role on the IMSA side of things, even when he stepped back and, and John Doonan replaced him as the man in charge of IMSA. Scott remained there in in terms of trying to help with that dialogue and keeping those relationships intact. And as we talk about so often, this is such a crucial time for prototype racing, and getting this right, I think, is going to be really critical for both series for sports car racing in general the opportunities are there for this to really usher in a glory period for for sports car racing if convergence is done correctly but there's also a chance for politics to get in the way personality and ego to get in the way and there's a lot of different scenarios that i can envision where this comes undone um so to have that continuity at least behind the scenes helping to grease the wheels a little bit that to me is a very good and encouraging development yeah, absolutely. And Gerard has been a huge proponent of working with IMSA, with the ACO and FIA working so closely with IMSA. So I think that's the best news of it all that, you know, I, I, I don't, as long as he's still there in the consultantary, his consulting role, um, I think that that will definitely help things as this process go, goes along towards 2022, 2023. What do you think is first on the agenda for Frederick? Because there's so much going on, like we talked about and it happens 
in this environment where COVID has really thrown a spanner into the works and makes making any kind of long-term plans, at least through the end of, of this calendar year, very, very difficult. Where do you think he focuses his energies initially as we try and uh, navigate these difficult t- and crucial times? I think you need to be really focused on the customers right now. And we see that in IMSA to some degree as well with the, the launch of the LMP3 class um, for at least the next, next two seasons in the WeatherTech Championship. Uh, you look at WEC going down to a six-race calendar. Um, there's going to be an influx of GTE AM teams. Um, there's a, seems to be more LMP2 teams on the horizon, or new teams at least, that are replacing some uh, some teams that have either decided to step back to ELMS or, or go elsewhere. So I think it's really important right now to make sure that these silver and bronze rated drivers, um, gentlemen drivers that are bringing money influx into the into the series, that they're happy, that they like the, the calendar. And the crucial point is, when do you sort of start rebuilding the calendar back up to maybe a potential eight or nine round world championship? Um, I guess that's going to really depend on the economy on when these drivers feel it's ready to go back into a full globe trotting championship, um, you know, especially with COVID. COVID still on the minds of many. Is this going to be a two-year process, a three-year process, or something longer? And then also, you know, keeping an eye on the manufacturers with LMDH and LMH. Um, you know, Peugeot's obviously entering in, in 2022 at some point. We don't know yet if it's going to be a full season or not. Um, then 2023 will be the first full season rollout of LMDH. So there's a lot of balls to juggle at this point. But I think at least for now, um, if, if I were in charge, at least, it would be really focusing on the customers to make sure they're happy. And a major component of that, I think, is something you mentioned, the calendar. That's going to be crucial, having backup plans for 2021 to handle any potential pitfalls that COVID might throw our way. And I think Sebring is the one that first comes to mind. But what do you do with a contingency plan for Le Mans if it becomes clear that having fan access is going to be limited or not at all possible on the scheduled date? I'm sure that's something that they're thinking about. And just finding a way to make a viable calendar in this kind of uncertainty is going to be difficult. I think the good news is I'm sure that the staff in place has already been planning these contingencies. It's not something that needs to be created out of whole cloth, but continuing to adapt to the changing uh, environment that that we're going to have throughout the course of 2021, that's going to be crucial as well. and, And certainly a big part of managing the customers like you talked about. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the good thing with something like uh, the size of a race of the 24 Hours Lama, you have the ACO directly involved with that as well. So it's not going to hinge just on one person's decision there. Um, ACO President Pierre Fion is very much in control of that event. So, uh, you know, if there is a decision made to delay that race for later in the year, like we saw last year, um, perhaps for to allow fans to attend, you know, I, I think that would have to be a, a, a decision made not just from the ACO, but also from WEC. And, and it won't hinge just on one person's, you know, decision there. So um, lots to look forward to, lots of decision making, and um, hopefully things will get back on track soon. 
Yep, fingers crossed. Let's turn the page to a slightly different topic here and move to Glickenhaus, where a lot of new information came out here this week about the the plans from Scuderia Cameron Glickenhaus about the debut of their LMH car. They had been targeting a debut at Sebring, and for various reasons, that uh, is not going to be the case should that race go go on. And it does not sound like Jim Glickenhaus expects that to be the case. He's uh, been quoted. Um, in our stories of talking about the fact that, that he views it that race as unlikely from the WEC side of things, not so much on the IMSA side, but that doesn't really affect his program. Nevertheless, that gives his team a bit more time to, to continue to work on the car, and crucially, it doesn't lock them into a homologation quite as early, and, and so I, I think that's something that he views as a real positive as he continues to put that program together then to, to debut sometime a little bit later, probably sometime in April or or whenever the the opening round or second round, depending on Sebring, ends up happening for the WEC. Yeah, I think this program has been delayed a little bit, but I think like everything, there's been delays, so there really shouldn't be any finger pointing on why there's a delay, obviously because of the current pandemic situation, but um, they're building up the car right now in, in Italy and um, have some extra support as, as we as we revealed with um, um, Yoast uh, helping run the operation alongside um, Sauber uh, with uh, working on the aerodynamics of the program, so a lot of good people behind this new Glickenhaus effort and I think a lot of people were skeptical about this program initially thinking that you know is it going to happen um, will we see cars on the grid um, Jim's a bit of a dreamer at times I think we've sort of seen that um, with other programs in, in the past but um, he's really lived up to his word so far with, with the program been pretty realistic and and coming out and saying hey Sebring's not possible let's put our focus towards the first European race of the season I think that makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see when the car actually does hit the track. I think he's set some objectives that it'll be soon. Um, so um, fingers crossed for that. And then we hopefully should get some announcements soon on some drivers, too. And you hinted or, or you mentioned the involvement of both Sauber and Yost on this project. I think those both are massive. Sauber, better known in recent years for what it's done in Formula One, but has a rich sports car racing history as well and crucially a world-class wind tunnel and that's really what they've enlisted Sauber to help with but I think the Yoast announcement or, or the mention that Yoast was going to be involved raised a lot of eyebrows I think Jim was really clear in stating this is not a Yoast program Yoast is a service provider helping to provide things like trucks and a little bit of the staffing but it ultimately is a Scuderia uh, Cameron Glickenhouse operation that is going to be running this thing. Nevertheless, I think a lot of us have been wondering what the future of Yoast is going to be ever since their partnership with Mazda terminated, and this looks like a, a really compelling landing spot for them, and I think they bring something to the table that will really help the, the Glickenhaus program. Yeah, I think it's a great short-term solution. I don't know if this is something that'll be continuing with Glickenhaus for years and years to come. You know, you you never know what happens with, with Audi, obviously coming back into top-level prototype racing. Will they want to realign with Yoast for a program? I, I don't know. It's just pure speculation on my part. But, um, you know, this could be 
this could benefit both ends of the party. You know, obviously Yost has so much experience, particularly at Le Mans. And I think that's where Jim has really enlisted them for their expertise there and their knowledge and their um, know-how. Um, Glickenhaus has been a team that has tackled the, the Nürburgring 24 hours for a number of years, but has never taken on the, the French Endurance Classic. So I think that's going to benefit them a lot there. And then also it's going to benefit Yost in knowing how the new hypercar top-level class operates, you know, um, how these cars are built, how the competition is, um, you know, how the, the rules are structured. You know, it's going to be a lot different from what we understand from what LMP1 was, both from a cost perspective, from a infrastructure, personnel, um, regulations, etc. So, um, you know, should Yoast end up having a deal in the future for uh, a factory LMDH or an LMH program with a manufacturer, I think this puts them in a good position to be up on the rules and not to be completely dormant since the end of its involvement with Mazda. Some really good quotes from Jim Glickenhouse in our stories up at sportscar365.com. Credit to Dan Lloyd for tracking those down. So if you'd like more on the Glickenhouse project, there's a few stories up there and also some with some quotes from the O side of things, too. So check out the website for more on those topics. Moving stateside to IMSA, we've been wondering a lot about who Corvette Racing will be racing against in the GT Le Mans class in 2021, at least for the full season. We do expect there to be several competitors at the Rolex 24 and perhaps some of the other major endurance races, but full season programs outside of Corvette had not been announced until now when we found that uh, WeatherTech Racing will be racing in the GTLM class. That in and of itself is not a huge surprise. We, we had heard some rumors that this might be coming, but the surprise, I think, is that it's going to be in Porsche machinery with some help from the, the Proton team. Really interesting, first of all, that this is what materialized, and then the way that it played out, too, is, is quite interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely, because... For quite a few months, we we were given the impression that there would not be a customer Porsche on the grid um, in IMSA. Um, Pascal Zerlinden, the the factory boss for, for for Porsche Motorsport globally, had adamantly said, you know, they're not going to support a car. There's, you know, the end of the factory program in IMSA means no cars in GTLM, and all of a sudden we had this happen, and um, it ended up turning out to be that uh, a, a program that was planned with Ferrari sort of fell through, according to Cor uh, Cooper McNeil, who who spoke um, about this on, on Midweek Motorsport last week on, on John, to John Hindoff and uh, basically explained that um, they were going down the Ferrari path, as we had previously reported, and um, indicated that there uh, didn't a deal didn't materialize and from what we understand it was basically a lack of factory support a lack of um support that they had were expecting from ferrari to make that happen um didn't come through and so um at one point uh weather tech racing and cooper were looking elsewhere in other championships other than imsa um we've seen it in the past where they've uh, moved over to probably world challenge for half of the season and um, i know they've always had ambitions of doing wec so i think those were the two series that they perhaps were looking at as alternatives until um they were able to work on a deal with porsche to keep them in the weather tech championship for the full season with uh a 911 RSR 19 chassis. So um, this will, as you said, it'll be run by Proton Competition, which is no stranger to that car. Um, 
actually it'll be running the 19 spec car for the first time but it, it is still um running rsrs in in europe for a number of for n- numerous years and um having a lot of success there in the gte am ranks this will obviously be in the pro class going up against corvette and for what and also um bmw to some extent this year we're still waiting on news from team rll and bmw as to what their program will be for next year for this year but uh hopefully it's all signs will indicate maybe potential full season effort with one car uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens um, maybe an, an announcement later this week but going back to WeatherTech, yeah it is definitely a bit of a surprise i think that they ended up with porsche but i think the good news is that they're staying in the WeatherTech championship and i think that's the the key here it sounds like from the announcement as well that there will be sort of a rotating cast around Cooper McNeil coming from the Porsche factory driver ranks. So that's something to keep an eye on as as we move forward. Only the Daytona lineup has been confirmed as far as I'm aware. And then there have been some hints as to uh, who might be there for the rest of the season. But I think perhaps more interesting, as you alluded to, is uh, Cooper is not a pro-level driver. He's a very accomplished uh, gentleman driver um, and, and certainly has the pace to run some very good lap times. So it, we've seen that demonstrated in various series over the years, but to go up against a couple of factory cars from Corvette for the full season, I think it begs the question, what what do you think made this an attractive proposition for Cooper, for WeatherTech and, and the whole program? I think it's a, just a new challenge. Um, you know, racing in GT Daytona has become really, really competitive. And if you don't have a super silver, as you would call it, it sort of becomes challenging to contend for wins and and when you look at the the state of the gtlm class where you know quite frankly it's on the decline it's probably going to be the final year with gte spec machinery um i think it makes some sense to to join that um you know it's not just a chance to, to to go click off podium finishes but also the chance to go for class wins and i think strategy is going to have a big play in how this program operates um you look at the minimum drive Drive times in GTLM, it's usually um, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Uh, it depends on the race, but um, you know, theoretically, uh, Cooper can run for a stint, um, hand over the car to his Porsche factory driver, and and still be in contention for a win. So, um, you know, things are going to have to play out where, you know, I, I think um, decisions will have to be made and how much drive time Cooper gets. But at the same time, I, I think um, it is a wise move in, in of sorts. And in, in A, not only having a chance to go for wins and maybe having a, a perhaps better mathematical chance with less cars in the class but also helping keep the class stable in terms of entries as well you know if if we end up with say one factory bmw for the season um one full season porsche uh, there'll be four full season entries down from the six but it's better than two so i i think um it, it's a it's a clever move and um i'll be interested to see how it works out Next topic of conversation and the final one for the show this week is some positivity out of GT World Challenge America, powered by AWS, as we've talked about a lot, especially going back to our year in review episodes. It was a difficult year for GT3 racing in SRO America last year, especially towards the end of the season when the numbers of entries had dropped to uh, levels that I don't think anyone was happy with. 
and there was the announcement subsequent to the completion of the season that the pro class would be returning. I think we viewed that with some optimism, but also it was kind of couched in the question of where are these entries going to come from? And while we have had some good news about pro class cars coming for next year the the k-pax lamborghinis come to mind in general it's been positive to see a groundswell of support for gt3 racing in several of the different classes so we've had in the last week ian lacy racing announcing that it will be making the step up to gt3 after several years with touring cars and gt4 cars they'll be in an aston martin which is cool to see with uh, frank gannett and andrew staveley and then more recently af corsa interestingly enough announcing its first GT World Challenge America involvement in team history. It'll be an AM entry for JC Sada and Conrad Grunwald. And so while we're not talking about a dozen pro class cars like perhaps we saw four or five years ago, maybe that's even low for four or five years ago, it's still good to see. And I think, John, we're trending towards something like 14, 15 full time GT3 cars, which it certainly isn't where you want to be, but it is a big improvement over where the series has been for the last 18 months or so. Yeah, I think when you look at the grid announcements as a whole, I think it's some, there's some really good momentum here, you know, not just from the level of teams, you know, you like we mentioned, AF Corsa, um, KPAX returning, also um, Turner Motorsport announcing a, a, a car there. We don't know if the lineup there, but, you know, um, we'll have to wait and see if it's a pro or pro-am or, or an am entry. But just seeing these teams commit to the series, especially after such a, a challenging year in 2020, I think says a lot. And and um, who knows what's really behind all of this, but I, I think it's still either way really good news to see, um, by my count, five or six entries having been confirmed in, in the last couple of weeks. And if you add those to the entries we had last year, which averaged around six or seven, that's, that's almost doubling the grid already as it is. And and we know um, SRO America President and CEO Greg Gill, he's targeting, uh, I think, around a 15-car grid. And by all signs, I think, think we're pointing towards that target being um, achieved. So I think overall, some really good news out of SRO America for for its top series. Yep. And uh, all indications are that more could be coming. So that is encouraging. It also sounds like the GT4 grids are going to be quite healthy. I think there's a lot of curiosity at what the the GT America championship is going to look like. That's a home for both current and previous generation GT3 cars, as well as single driver GT4 and GT2 racing. The GT3 also single driver 40 minute sprint races um, and they'll actually be part of the IndyCar uh, weekend at Nashville as the lone SRO America representative at that street race which I think uh, I know talking to James Safronis for instance he was quite excited about that being on the schedule so there is some positivity to say the least and and I think uh, touring cars continue to look strong so we'll see fingers crossed that the growth continues and we have a, a strong grid throughout the 2021 season which will kick off in Sonoma in March. So looking forward to that. Let's get to a listener question that came in after last week's show. This one from Shay Samuels, taking us back to LMDH discussion. Shay wants to know, do you think that any prospective or confirmed manufacturers that aren't currently competing in DPI would start a current-gen DPI program to gain experience and or test car equipment, such as drivetrain components, before the 2023 launch of LMDH? 
uh, mentions as well. This comes from how Penske came to IMSA using an Orica LMP2 before the launch of the Acura DPI car. That's a really good question, but based on what I have heard, it sounds like it might just be a, a little too late to, for any manufacturer to, to make that happen. Um, it's at least a 12-month cycle in order to get a full DPI on the grid, and you can't really just sort of shortchange it and do just an engine or just a, some body work. It has to be the full package, as, as IMSA has mandated. And we had this back when Ford was looking at um, LMDH, what was to become LMDH with the DPI 2.0. And they had actually built a, a car, from what we understood, um, in development, and they were planning to be on the grid in the 2020 season, um, ultimately calling off that plan and sort of backtracking because of the, the the, uh, the rules that ended up being announced at Lamar that year um, in 2019. And I think what we saw there was a manufacturer could put something forward for an interim program, but it didn't really make a lot of sense with the way the rules were structured and the, the changes that were being proposed for for the following generations. So um, I wouldn't expect that, but what I would expect is um, teams um, preparing for prototype racing or DPI. You see somebody like Chip Ganassi, for instance, with a Cadillac DPI. I think that could be a sign for something maybe to come with maybe perhaps another manufacturer in the future. We, I don't know which manufacturer we could be looking at, but putting a team out there, for instance, with experience um, makes a lot of sense. We're, we're seeing that in, in the European ranks as well with uh, with operations like Phoenix Racing, WRT. Um, you know, you have drivers as well. Christopher Meese is going to be making his LMP2 debut in a, in a, in a Dragon Speed Orica um, for the Rolex 24. He's an Audi factory driver with no prototype experience. So I think that's the evolution we're going to be seeing in the next couple of years. Not necessarily actual machinery from the OEMs, but from some teams, from drivers, and, and the like to prepare for the LMDH era. And keep in mind, I think LMDH is targeted for projects like those, having teams like Chip Ganassi Racing or WRT or TF Sport, which is going prototype racing, mm -hmm. um, the, having those as kind of the service providers on behalf of the manufacturers, kind of like what you see by and large in GT3 racing, actually. Uh, this, this seems to be the business model for LMDH. So for the manufacturer to put up the money to do this kind of development, if you will, ahead of time, maybe there is some advantage in, in trying a drivetrain component like you mentioned but the cost associated with it i'm not sure it's balanced out by the gains that you would get from a relatively short amount of time on track and, and instead encouraging your drivers encouraging your potential team partners to go out and get that prototype experience that's probably more beneficial and cost effective at this point in in the program but i suppose the the wild card to this john would be if imsa were to waive some of their restrictions about having to go with the full dpi package and if they saw the as a way to entice a potential manufacturer, could you see them shifting those rules around and saying to a Hyundai, for instance, all right, we know you're interested in LMDH, you have no previous prototype experience, stick your engine in an Orica chassis, for instance, and run that for a year and use that to build up to LMDH. And maybe that's the carrot that entices a manufacturer to come in. Yeah, that, that could be a possibility, but... Um 
we'll have to wait and see. I haven't heard anything of any specifics there. Um, yeah. Well, I, I certainly haven't either. I, I'm just throwing it out there as an sure, idea sure. that that maybe IMSA could could use this as uh, a potential incentive to get some. OEM commitments to LMDH, but there's a very good chance that they don't feel the need to do that. It's, it sounds yeah. encouraging that there are enough OEMs already interested uh, without any extra carrot dangled in front of their nose, so yeah, uh, I, I who think, knows? I think that's the likely route because um, yeah, DPI will not have the same number, same car count numbers in the next couple seasons, but what we have to look forward to in 2023, you know, you already have Audi, you already have Porsche, um, there's others, you know, Acura that are in the works, and 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 according to John Doonan, there's more announcements to come in the few mo- next few months, hopefully. So, I think we have enough interest in LMDH, I don't think there needs to be more incentives, at least, to change the rules in DPI right now, because I think that might upset the existing mm-hmm. manufacturers. Yeah. Very good point. So thank you very much, Shay, for the question. Definitely good food for thought there. And if you, like Shay, would like to submit a question or comment to our, a future show, you can use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter or leave a comment in the comment section of the page that houses the podcast up at sportscar365.com. Finally, John, a look ahead to this weekend, and we've made reference to it a few times, but the hand-cooked 24 hours of Dubai, I think in a lot of senses, really kicks off the sports car racing season. This is an entry list that is pretty exciting. By my count, 53 cars on the published entry list, including eight from the GT3 Pro ranks, uh, double-digit GT3 entries across multiple classes. A lot to be excited about here, I think, and I know what my plans for the weekend are. Yeah, this this race typically brings in some more cars than than what we see on the entry list. But given everything that's going on with COVID, I think it's certainly a very strong list. Um, You know, Kravencek has struggled with four entries uh, with some of its uh, races last year in the post-COVID world. And um, I think this is definitely a a high point for them. And um, yeah, uh, Dubai is traditionally the kickoff of the international sports car racing season. The Gulf 12 Hours beat them to that this time, but um, due to some scheduling uh, uh, scheduling reasons for that. The, the, the golf race was, was supposed to be held in December. They moved it to actually January. But um, nonetheless, um, uh, lots of action this weekend in Dubai, and, and it should be a good race. Yep, looking forward to it. We'll have some coverage of the, the race up at the website as well. So check in on that throughout the weekend, and we'll spend a bit more time on it, recapping the race on the show coming up next week. Thanks so much to everybody who tuned in. We do appreciate it. Thanks to John for his insights as well. And we look forward to talking to you next week with our next edition of the Double Stint Podcast. 